Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host today, Peaches Hall, who is pinch-hitting for Carol Zerniel, Carol on special assignment. We are always delighted to have Peaches fill in with us. Peaches is the executive director at the Doris Griffin Senior Center at Ingram Park Mall. She also uh, formerly managed a memory unit down in Florida where she had a lot of experience uh, hands-on with folks with Alzheimer's disease and in her current job uh, deals uh, not only with uh, seniors but often caregivers uh, for those seniors as well and many seniors who are also caregivers. So uh, we wrap all that up with our very special guest joining us in a moment. But before we do that, uh, you and I, uh, Peaches, were talking before we went on the air. We've got a a young woman coming on who has a number of uh, uh, advanced degrees, including a PhD in anthropology. Uh, And I said to you that uh, I would have been an anthropologist. (laughs) When I went to Colgate University years ago, uh, you, you took a number of core courses uh, and got a taste of everything in the liberal arts field, and I loved anthropology until I discovered you had a camp. But I'm fascinated by it, which is why it's a thrill uh, to welcome to our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline uh, Dana Walrath, who is uh, not only uh, experienced in dealing with a mom with Alzheimer's, uh, but has a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania, a master's in fine arts and writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and an undergraduate degree in visual arts and biology from Barnard College. You have been to not-so-shabby schools. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, it was, you know, I appreciate that my parents made that possible for me. I was going to ask if you, if you have $10 million in student loans hanging out there. No, no. It was, well, back when I was going to school, school was cheaper. And then after I, after my first year at Barnard, my mother started working here. So I actually got free tuition after that. So I wow. was very lucky. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, you have, so, you know, we were talking briefly before we uh, went on the air, air Dana, and you have an amazing, eclectic uh, background and education. Uh, and yet you said, you know what? It all fits together. Yeah, that's one of the joys of growing old. I know in our society that emphasizes youth, we think about, oh, gosh, what if, what have I lost? What have I lost? I found that now that I'm older, every single thing that I've done has become relevant and connected. And um, I, my mother had wanted me to go to medical school, and um, I had this creative streak, and I just kept on going with that. But it wasn't until she and dementia moved back in with me, and this was after I already had gotten my practical degree, which was a doctorate in anthropology, that my mom, when she was living with us one day, she said, you, she's from New York, you should quit your job and make art full-time. And <laughs> I took a leave of, of absence from my job, and that's when the creative work came I started to really flourish. That's when I got the MFA, and and it really was on account of the dementia that all of that happened, because before that, my mother was always thinking practically, whereas dementia loosened mm-hmm. her up so she could see, wow, you love that, and you're good at that. Maybe you should just quit your job and do that. <laughs> and, and so. you know, one of the things that uh, I know you wanted to talk about was uh, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's through the looking glass and on your website uh, you've got a neat little cover uh, of that book it's really cool did you design the cover no i did all the artwork for the book but the cover was designed by a wonderful armenian uh, graphic designer named haruchin samuelian and he just fell in love with the work and then i thought designed such a perfect cover so that when my agent was looking for a home for it here in the United States, uh, they they used the design from from um, the Armenian publisher and graphic designer, which was really lovely. So, uh, so it is my artwork, but his design. Now, um, you so mentioned <laughs> you you came across an Armenian uh, designer, but not by accident. You had a Fulbright scholar uh, in Armenia. Others went, of yes. course, to Rome and Paris. You went to <laughs> Armenia. I went to Armenia in part because my mom had been waking up from naps 
speaking her first language, Armenian. Very often, the, and Alzheimer's is like a reversal of the life cycle. And so, well, I watched her feel like a 20-year-old and then like an, an adolescent. And there were days where it was feeling like pretty soon she might only be speaking Armenian because she didn't learn English like so many immigrants. She only learned it when she went off to kindergarten. And so I thought, let me go to Armenia, let me get my Armenian in good shape, and let me study aging in that culture. So I, I did a project over there that was uh, an integration of the Alzheimer's stories from my mother in dementia with what growing old is like over there. And um, I'm working on a second book right now that will blend those two stories together. What is it like growing old over there? Oh, man, it's we have something so lucky here. I mean, what is happening is there's very high unemployment. So that middle generation who traditionally took care of people as they aged, they're off in other countries. They're off in Moscow working. So old people are on their own lots of times and um, living on very limited pensions and um, and really struggling to make life work. So it's it's uh, it's tough, but yet at the same time, it's a culture that reveres mm. old age and history, and um, and so old people will be treated with respect. Every young people jump up on the bus to give their seats away, and I worked with um, seniors who got together uh, once a week and just would would tell each other stories and keep each other's minds active and growing and going and um, but but they are up against much harder uh, physical social and economic situations compared to us I mean there aren't nursing homes there's no things like memory care that's just easily accessible for people and so lots of times old people are really stuck and isolated if you've just joined us, she's Dana Walrath. Dr. Walrath is a uh, anthropologist, uh, a specialist in uh, medical anthropology. We're going to find out what that means, and we're talking with her about a variety of projects she's in, been involved in, including an amazing uh, piece about uh, her mother and her struggles with uh, Alzheimer's through the looking glass. Uh, Peaches Hall filling in today for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment. I'm Ron Aaron. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., the answer. And you were telling us uh, briefly uh, off the air, and I said, no, hold that story. Don't tell us yet uh, about medical anthropology. What does that mean? Medical anthropology is looking at the beliefs and practices of medicine. For example, in our culture, medicine is science. And scientists solve problems and figure out ways that um, doctors can then kind of work on tooling up our bodies the way that they can, um, the way cars get repaired even. I mean, we're, we're masters at surgery, and there's been amazing breakthroughs like antibiotics that stave off death. So we have a medical system that... Uh, focuses on preventing death. And that means that anytime somebody has a chronic condition, an incurable condition, it scares all of us. So this makes it very difficult for people at the end of life with something like dementia, where not only is it chronic, but it's also messy, it's also incurable, it's a mind problem rather than a body problem. We're much better at fixing bodies in, in our medical system than we are at, at helping people with mind problems. And so this isolates people who are living with something like dementia and, and any other kind of cognitive or mental difference. And um, so, so medical anthropology gives me the lens through which I understand how dementia is experienced. And it, it led me to start uh, making comics about it, drawing pictures about uh, dementia, because I wanted people to see someone with dementia and see them as a whole true person instead of someone hidden off the, um, and in isolation and sort of to bring back their humanity that way. And in your case, uh, did a lot of this interest develop uh, as your mother developed Alzheimer's disease? Uh, well, the medical anthropology was something that I did long before my mother had the dementia, had the Alzheimer's. But as I was taking care of her, I was realizing that it was the medical anthropology that was informing how I did all my decision-making. And, and uh, so that it gave me a way to sort of see how my mother appreciated some things from medicine. She, uh, like, she just loves going to the doctor. She loves 
she always felt sort of that kind of trust with the white coat and the rustle of the paper and the exam room and so forth. So she loved that respect, but then at the same time, um, there wasn't very much that a physician could do for her within dementia. So I could keep on bringing her to the doctor because that felt good, but then also see that the way that we needed to help make life good for her didn't really involve taking pills. It involved changing how we uh, met her in day-to-day life. Mm. I I found that um, in memory care, if the physicians came and visited the the patients that were with me, they did better when a a physician wore a white coat because it identified them. They had a different respect level than the younger population did, so it went it went well. I'm curious, when you went to Romania, did what did you bring back from that? What was that? We'll find out in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. Stay right with us. They call that a tease in the radio business. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, talking with Dana Walrath and uh, her experience and uh, the variety of work that she's involved in, including a really cool blog that she writes uh, for the New York Times, all available online. Uh, we're just happy, happy to have you with us, Dana. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And we're here, too, immediately following WellMed Radio with Caregiver SOS on air at 6 p.m. Sundays on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall, who is filling in for Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment today. And we're talking with Dana Walrath on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline. And you were asking, Dana, let's recap the bidding here. Yeah, I, I'm just so th- excited that you would go back, uh, talk to people in Romania, see how people handle dementia there. Armenia. But- uh, yes. Yeah. And and uh, tell me, what did you bring back that helped your mom? Um, I mean, what I brought back was, uh, was fluency in the language, which, which was really great. I mean, I had grown up just speaking English at home, and so uh, I, I had a skill that served her during dementia, serves her still, because um, she's still alive and... and um, uh, and it's not all that verbal, but this is a channel that comes up sometimes. I brought back a real desire to get the story out into the world, and so it is actually more than a blog. It's a book now. I, I stopped posting on the blog when it started getting very deep and personal, which I feel like belongs more inside the pages of the book. Right. So now, now anybody can find... Uh, you know, the book at your local independent bookstore, at Amazon, wherever you buy books. So, so, um, and it's out there. And I felt like it was really important to get it into book form because so many of the people that are struggling with dementia, caregivers and patients alike, are devoted to books. They're readers and they need ways to stay connected and have books that are accessible to them. So this is a book that blends images and texts and very short bits of of writing because people with dementia and caregivers alike have uh, short amounts of time available, whether it's through the short attention span of dementia or whether it's you're an exhausted caregiver, so you only have 10 minutes to sit down and read something. So I wanted to create something in a format that would serve that community. And being in Armenia helped me sort of push that whole project to completion and then understand um, my my cultural history mm-hmm. and get to sort of plug in uh, pieces of my background that I didn't really know and understand. So the last third of the book really draws on those cross-cultural experiences. You're, and, right, you're right about how your mom, uh, you had hoped she'd stay 
where she was among friends, but chose to uh, move to Vermont to live with you. Uh, and yet, as you uh, uh, point out in a little excerpt on your website, uh, your mother hated snow. I was the daughter who got on her nerves. The feeling was mutual. <laughs> yes, it really surprised me that she ended up living with me. She, uh, We were not close. And um, I, I like to imagine that what would happen is when physicians give the diagnosis of dementia, they can say, this is an opportunity for you to recreate relationships with people that that um, had taken maybe a wrong turn. So my mother and I got very close during dementia. She, um, When she lived with me, I, I received more compliments in those couple of years than I had in my entire life up till then. It was great. And, and she really was uh, looking out for me in very profound ways. Um, I know early in dementia, she, uh, early when she lived with us, she made me promise that when it got too hard, I would do something else. So it, it, that meant that uh, I didn't have to agonize at the time that it became clear that she might be better off living in a memory care situation rather than living with us. For a few years, it was fantastic. She blended right in with family life, and then it got really too confusing and too difficult for her just to have friends stop by out of the blue and so forth. Um, but it, So I just think, wouldn't it be great if that's how diagnosis went, if a physician said, here, this is an opportunity. You're losing some things, but you have an opportunity to gain other capacities and to repair relationships and so forth. You also write that uh, with, and I love the term, uh, I gather your mother's name was Alice. Yes. Is Alice. Alzheimer's let us write our own story daily, a story that in turn helps rewrite the dominant medical narrative of aging. What does that mean? Well, that means, I mean, that we, we all just fear aging because it's close to death, because we fear death. We don't talk about that at all, and, and it is really a natural part of life. And that if we can have that out there more, that will help everybody. But within something that's stigmatized and like dementia and um, mental illness of any sort, people experience a social death as uh, before the biological death even gets there. So they're somehow less human than other people, and the rules of caring for them shift because they're different, because they've lost their memory, because they can't do what they used to be able to do. And and we often, you know, we're so afraid as a society of dementia that we tend to think of people who have it as as zombies, sort of their bodies without minds. And instead, I like to say we're we're um, they're just different. They're, people with dementia are very present in that moment. They haven't necessarily. Uh, lost their intelligence or their sophistication, especially in those early and middle stages of the dementia, they've just lost their short-term memories. And what we can do as we're caring for them is make it possible for them to show all that's still present. And in the process, they can teach us how to be more appreciative about living in the moment. Um, I mean, my mom, for example, she, she, you know, how people with dementia repeat themselves. So I would buy cut flowers and have them on the table. Um, and she would say again and again, oh, flowers are gorgeous. And it reminded me to stop and notice things like that because I was just working a mile a minute. And to have someone uh, bring me back to the beauty of that moment is, is something that I think most Americans who are working very hard would benefit from. In your one of your many professions, uh, looking at anthropology, uh, hanging out with people 35,000 years and, and older, uh, people didn't live as long. Is there any way to know whether there was dementia then? Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to think about. You know, we, we, we always talk about how they didn't live very long, but we do know that um, about 30, well, 35, maybe another couple of by 10,000 years beyond that, people were caring for the, those who were sick. And, um, and there was, that was part of the human way and the human condition. Uh, and brain tissue doesn't 
fossilized, so we'll never know if there was dementia in the past. We just know for sure that there was caregiving in the past. I mean, we've got uh, fossils that are um, uh, of individuals who say lost part of their arm, and so you know while they were healing, someone was just bringing everything to them and helping them um, uh, heal up from a serious injury. So uh, we do know that caregiving is old, even if we don't know exactly when dementia started. One of the things that fascinates me about anthropology and paleoanthropology is uh, you can find a quarter-inch piece of a knuckle and from that reconstruct an entire being. <laughs> yeah, to greater or lesser degrees. So a lot of imagination can go into it. <laughs> I would think. Time. So uh, yeah, Lucy, yeah. Lucy doesn't look like we think Lucy looked, or we don't know. Um, no, I think with Lucy, that was a pretty complete skeleton. So she looked like she looked. Um, I, I think we've got a good idea of of, of her. I think we're, um, but we don't. We can also. Um, understand how she moved and what she ate and things like that, but we don't know very much about her emotional life. That kind of stuff doesn't fossilize until much more recently where we get things like art in the record, in the fossil record, where we can see that that, um, our ancestors were making images and and, um, making little figurines of of, um, goddesses, of Venuses, that, that show that we valued that connection through the generations and so that that's when we can first start inferring that and that began around 40,000 years ago. And not far from San Antonio along the Pecos River and, and further south there are uh, cave paintings that uh, are, are quite mm. celebrated. Yes, I would love to come and see those. It's, uh, the, the, um, it, it's really something to be in the presence of, of humans from long ago and that Again, is back what what the dementia journey can be like. It's you're getting the privilege of understanding your older relatives at a different point in time. So now I can appreciate what an adorable little kid my mother must have been because of how how engaged she is um, now as a person with pretty advanced dementia. I mean, she just uh, will flash a beautiful smile and um, and connect with people that way. So it's uh, we sort of are used to thinking of time in a very linear way, and Alzheimer's can take us out of that and, and let us experience time um, maybe, well, in a more imaginative way and maybe in a way that can really uh, serve all of us. As you think about uh, your experience with your mother and uh, how that has broadened. You must hear from uh, a number of other people who are uh, caregivers for uh, Alzheimer's and, and dementia patients. Yes, yes, I do, I do. Um, and, and what I've found is people are saying, oh, I never thought of doing that. Thank you for um, you know this model of, of how to be with someone with dementia. So, I mean, I know you know that that there are quite a few people out there saying you know meet the person where they are and and so forth. But when a person gets to read a story, watching someone meet the person with dementia exactly where they happen to be at that moment, it sticks in a different way compared to the the. Um, being told, here's what you do. A story gets right into our hearts, and we can uh, remember it, retain it, and then sort of enact it in our own lives. Our, our co-host, uh, Carol Zerniel, who's on assignment today, and Peaches is filling in for her, uh, her in-laws and her mother uh, have uh, uh, dementia, and she's talking, I'm not telling any secrets here, she's talked about it on the air, and she told a story yeah. about her wedding, uh, where she and her husband, Ernie, people asked her, well, are, are you going to have uh, your mother there. And she said, well, of mm-hmm. course my mother's going to be there. And, and they accommodated her mother's uh, uh, fantasy that uh, the wedding was really a party in celebration and in honor of her, the mom. So they put Absolutely. her on a little they put her on a little stage. They set her on a stage. Uh, they, they had her in a special chair. And that was her party. As someone with dementia, they celebrated where she was at that moment. 
Absolutely. And, and I mean, you can, you can do that in lots of small ways, even outside of the context of a big event, but that's a beautiful way to handle a wedding. Um, my, my mom probably has Louis bodies, which brings in a lot of hallucinations into the right. dementia. Right. And what we started getting, learning to do is just to read the hallucinations as signs of things that she needed to talk about. So she would see my dead father up in the treetop. And it was clear she needed to talk about him. And so we would talk about him, and it was clear she was longing for him. And then we figured out, you know, a way to sort of integrate all of that so she could feel that closeness to him. Uh, she, at various times, she would, she, I remember once she woke up from a nap hallucinating that she had grown hooves and horns, and that couldn't have been anything but a signal to me that she was feeling badly about something and she needed to talk about it. So those hallucinations each time were a signal that if I could read it carefully instead of saying, no, there's no horns, you don't, you know, what are you thinking? No, he's not up in the trees. I could understand that she was trying through the hallucinations to give me hints of what she needed to talk about. And so then she could process what she needed to process in order to be able to die in peace. We're going to take a break. We're we're going to take a quick break and stay with us right (laughs) here. As Wellman brings you Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. We are chugging right along here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, uh, along with Peaches Hall, who is pinch-hitting for our regular co-host, Carol Zerniel, who is on special assignment. We're having just the best time talking with Dana Walrath, and uh, we could do this, you know, like forever. So uh, as, we, as we talk, you're delight to talk to, as we talk with you about uh, not only Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's Through the Looking Glass book and the other works in which you're involved in, a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Pennsylvania, an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and a B.A. in visual arts and biology from Barnard College. I lived in Philadelphia uh, for a while, and the uh, University of Pennsylvania is a, is a wonderful institution. Yeah, yeah. And Philly's got soul, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> now, you were talking about living in the moment with, uh, whether it's your mom with uh, probably Lewy Body's dementia or, or, or someone else with Alzheimer's. And uh, Peaches, in your experience uh, managing a memory unit, mm-hmm. uh, you, you worked so well with patients who would be living in a fantasy world in some cases. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes they just, they'll ask you exactly what they want or they say exactly what they want, or sometimes you have to kind of read what you think they want. But um, for, right. for birthdays, we would always kind of give them a choice of what would you like, and that's when we had that one gentleman that said, you know, I never dated a nurse. So um, <laughs> so we got a nurse's <laughs> outfit for his wife and sent her in that evening, and they were both happy. So, you know, so, but we've had some of them say, I just want to go back to work. And we had a, a gentleman yeah. that worked um, in, in the insurance business. And so we got a hold of a um, an office uh, that had sold insurance. And they let somebody, this guy, come in and just sit at a desk, you know, for most of the day and just act like he was bossing everybody around, had the best time. That's interesting. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really that. Those are really creative solutions, and then that creativity ends up being healing for the person, mm-hmm. for the people involved. Um, that's that's beautiful. I know my mom when she first went to memory care, she was convinced that it was an apartment complex that she actually owned, yeah. and everybody was paying her rent, yes. and it was it was just lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, we we also had men that would get up, you know, before it was even daylight, and we'd find out, you know they were a milk farmer and they were getting ready mm-hmm. to take the milk cans out so we'd always we bought two big milk cans we had them drag it out to the edge and then they'd go back have their cup of coffee and you know the the day started yeah. off great that's pretty cool that's great yeah, you know yeah. as i it listen really... uh, go ahead dan i'm sorry no go ahead go ahead i was gonna say as i listen uh, uh, to you uh, it, it occurs to me that many folks who become caregivers for someone with dementia my mother would be a great example my dad developed uh, dementia and uh, it was a journey that uh, she was on with no previous experience no training uh, but she did it out of love and caring and, and learned along the way uh, we all ought to get some kind of class that, that teaches us about all this 
Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that's something that's missing in our medical system because it's so set up to prevent death. And we could really make it easy for everybody. And uh, because I think the caregivers are so overwhelmed with daily tasks and with the grief, but then if they got the skills so that they could uh, have an easier time in the moment, then they'd have more time to kind of focus on their grief when they're on their own. Because what happens is, I think people with um, dementia are very emotionally in tune, and they can pick up someone's sadness or someone's frustration or someone's anger. And if they see that in a caregiver, then they'll get more ornery and more frustrated. Mm. So if if we can support caregivers, so their loss is really acknowledged and 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 um, dealt with, then they can be in great shape to meet the people that they're caring for and in ways that then will make their daily lives so much easier. And and don't you find too that people with dementia have less inhibitions and but the their spouses or their loved ones keep that. So sometimes there's like that level of embarrassment like mom please don't eat with your hands or you know ma'am put oh, your shirt absolutely. back on and and so we we project that that kind of like uh, onto them and it makes it spirals more i saw a wonderful absolutely uh, you know wonderful example of someone who who was able to accept uh, that her, her mother had uh, different kinds of behaviors i was at our local grocery store this is several months ago standing in the checkout line and, and the woman in front of me was with her mother who who uh, you know was pretty clear uh, was struggling with uh, dementia one never knows what kind but but as i put all my little groceries on the conveyor belt she very carefully took them off and put them in her mother's basket, her daughter's basket, one piece after another. And her mother, right. instead of jumping all over her, said, well, Mom, we need to put those back on the conveyor belt, and can you help us do that? Uh, which she did, and she put them all back on the conveyor belt. And I thought it was just a wonderful little interchange. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and the more ways that we can um, just accept the behaviors and, and actually think of them as as behaviors that might even teach us different things. I with my mother what we the way we handled um, all of the things that she could see that we didn't or the fact that she could be in World War Two and we'd be in two thousand nine is we just said she had special powers. Mm-hmm. So instead of ever fighting the situation, um, she she loved that idea, you know, so uh, if, if her parents, if she was seeing them around uh, herself as on by the sofa, uh, she'd say, you, you can see them, can't you? And I'd say, well, I can't, but you can because you have special powers. Um, and then she just accepted that and we went on from there. And it's sort of following that, that um, principle that they use in improv comedy where you say yes and. So if the person is um, seeing something and you can't see it, you just go with it. You say yes. I might not see it, but you can, and you've got special powers. Yeah. That's the end part. And then that kind of detoxified and took away the frustration. And validated. And, I, I, and validated, exactly. And, and um, because the person with dementia really is seeing that thing, mm-hmm. and they're working so hard to stay connected to us without the benefit of a short-term memory. So yeah. the more we can validate them, the better. And what you said earlier teachers about um about uh the social governors kind of falling apart with uh, the people with dementia and then the family members getting so worried and embarrassed calling it a special power kind of made that easier for all of us mm-hmm. and and um uh it, it she took pride in it then instead of having to feel as though she were being censored and then um and then we could also uh, have a good time with it because as soon as you're laughing about it and having fun with it, mm-hmm. everybody's relaxed. And, and that, I think that's the biggest thing that I would advocate for um, in terms of what you were saying earlier, Ron, about how could there be a, cha- uh, a training program. Right. I think that we want to give everybody permission to laugh at this situation. And we all think that we have to stay extremely serious about things that are heartbreaking. But if we can laugh about it, then we get new ideas and we stay loose and we stay comfortable. 
So that more than anything is is um, uh, what I tried to include in Alzheimer's and and um, and in our daily lives because. Laughter's respite. It lets us think of new ways to cope. She's our special and, uh, guest, uh, Dana Walrath. We're going to come right back to you right here on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, uh, along with Peaches Hall. Uh, your website, DanaWalrath.com, has a collection of uh, your art, and I want to talk in, in the remaining few minutes we're going to have about uh, comedy, arts, art, and comics. But I did want to play back an exchange you had uh, on your website with your mom when when she apparently said to you, I just wanted to know your name, and you say Dana, and she says, pretty name, and your mom, and you say, thanks, you gave it to me. And if I just call, you'll come. It might not be me, but if you call, I promise someone nice will come. And your mom says, that's good, thank you. I'll sleep well knowing that. Yeah. Now, lots of folks get all upset when, uh, someone with Alzheimer's doesn't know them, doesn't recognize them, doesn't know their name, uh, and often yeah. puts people on the spot. Uh, what's my name? What's my name? You don't know my name? I'm your kid. You don't right. know my name? And you didn't, you didn't go down that path. Not at all. It was, I mean, even in middle dementia, my mother would say things to me like, oh, it's so good I ran into you in the parking lot. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't. And she would know my name, but she didn't necessarily know I was her daughter. She'd say, are you my mother? Are you my sister? And, but what I ended up learning from that is, even if she didn't know my name, she always knew I was trustworthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, she trusted yeah. me so completely. And if we can sort of give up on that recognition social piece and just go with, does someone recognize our, our inner selves? And that she has never lost. Um, and that, again, it, it just unites us as, as a species, as, as a world. And we need to to have a world in which we're all looking out for each other more and more. And that's something that I learned from my mother through dementia, that let go of exactly who I am and just go with the more important question, am I trustworthy? Am I honest? Am I good? And that she could she could sense always, even if she didn't know my name. <laughs> yeah, I had a group of ladies that, as I would get to work in the morning, I would go to the table, and they were always there having coffee, and I would sit and talk with them, and I could remember leaving the table, and they'd go, who is she? I don't know, but she's always so nice. <laughs> and for four years, for four, but why would you put that pressure on somebody to make you know who you are? There are days I find somebody in the market I don't recognize, you know, so exactly. why do we do exactly. that? Mm-hmm. Now, Dana, well, we can we can learn humility from people with dementia. Yes. We really can, and, and and that will serve all of us. So, you know. We only have about two minutes left, which won't let you do justice to comics, comedy, art, and dementia. But talk to me about that. Well, I think that comics are a really special medium to use for any kinds of uh, stigmatized condition. So there's this whole new field of graphic medicine where people are making comics about different different kinds of sicknesses. And I think that in a comic form, those of us who are reading them, we go back to that kind of open, innocent child place that lets us be loose and lets us laugh. And then because of that looseness, we can take in some of the difficult things and then um, heal from them. I also wanted to stay in the medium of comics because people with dementia uh, really retain their visual capacities far longer than they do their verbal capacities. And so if you, uh, by writing something in comics, that meant that someone with dementia could also read it. I mean, my, my mom was reading every sort of graphic narrative that came into the house while she was living with us because um, the pictures made it easier. And then most of all, what comics do is they, they, they just they let us see the other person as a human being, as a real human being, because they're right there and they're drawn. And that restores their humanity and undoes that social death. Got to stop you right there. We're, we're flat okay. out of time. And you're just a wonderful, oh, a wonderful pleasure. guest. Dana Walrath. Dana Walrath.com. And uh, I hope folks go to your website. They can find out a lot about you and uh, purchase uh, a variety of your works. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for your show and your work. Well, I hope we talk again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Dana Walrath, Alzheimer's uh, Alzheimer's Through the Looking Glass. Wow, what a neat guest. Peaches Hall. She's cool. She was awesome. Well, she speaking was. of cool, Dr. Jamie Heisman's not bad either. He come, comes to us next on Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, it's time for Take 10. At the end of each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you a topic, and it's tossed about by Carol Zorniel and our special guest, Dr. Jamie Heisman. Dr. Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, a specialist in not only addictions, but caregiving, and meet Ron Aaron. And the topic that Carol has picked is... Uh, you're into music headlines now. This could be a song, a country-western song, Love and Burnout. I know. I'm trying to think about the melody and the words, but you're right. Love and Burnout. There's a, there's Patsy Cline used Patsy, to sing Yeah, that. I think. But, yeah, they, she certainly made the sounds, right. sounds of it. it. Um, so, Jamie, Love and Burnout. I was thinking about uh, caregiving, and there was a, an article in the New York Times that had the, the headline, Love and Burnout. So, you know, as, as caregivers, you know, the, we get into caregiving, you know, we, we're married to someone and suddenly they have Alzheimer's or cancer and we just jump in. We love that person so much. And this is all about our love of our spouse, love of our parent. It, it is 100% we want to do this. We're doing it for all the right reasons. How do we go from, if we're doing it from that good place, from that loving heart, how is it? that we can still end up in the burnout category. How is it that something that you want to do and you're doing out of love can lead to something negative that you never intended? Like burnout. Well, in your description, yeah, in your description of that, you jumped right over the actual caregiver's self-care. You know, you went right into the wanting and right into the love and right into the trusting of others and, and that, that you can be a caregiver to them and be there for them. And I think this is the critical issue that's going to come up to this segment over and over and over again, is that if you jump over the self-care of, of the caregiver, um, it becomes more codependent than it becomes that authentic sort of feel to help somebody. Well, you know, what was fascinating about this article was it was in the financial retirement section. So they were interviewing Wells Fargo Retirement Services saying, you know what? Caregivers can become burnt out in caring and they might die before their loved one. This just did. Well, definitely. Yeah, we know that. <laughs> we know that, right. No, yeah, we, we, that's been a statistic that's been quoted for ages and and what really prompted, you know, my involvement in getting caregiving way back when, um, that we're seeing that caregiving and burnout is, is so prevalent, and that with 90 million caregivers out there, if you're including the, the parents of special needs kids, um, we're just we're just looking at an overwhelmed, overworked, and and you know, burned out group. Why? Because again, we're not using this sort of caregiving uh, process to transform our own lives. We're looking to transform our loved ones' lives, and we don't realize that by transforming our lives and becoming, you know, medically well and psychologically well and socially well, it adds a, a safety component to our loved one to feel like they're in the presence of, of stability, and we just jump over that and think that nothing of it. Well, some caregivers don't even realize that they are feeling burnout. What would be a clue to them that things are not going quite as well or, or is going as badly as they think they are? 
Well, appetite obviously is a big issue. Sleep is always going to be a big issue. Caregivers, when they really look inside their gut uh, and feel the anxiety of the moment, like, you know, scared of what's going to happen next, um, you know, these are all the, the critical signs of, of burnout. Um, and and it's so even when you go take it as a caregiver, and this is what I would really, really, you know, mot- like to motivate our, our listeners to do, even when you go for your own medical evaluation, um, it's so important to look at those numbers to see what's, what's going on. If you're in an anxious mode and your cortisol is at the top, um, any medical condition you have is going to be exacerbated. Well, and as we and then t- if, you, if you're not there, how are you going to be there for your loved one? No, no, no. You're right. And, you know, and as we've talked in the past, what a lot of people don't realize is that that constant stress of caregiving actually takes down your immune system. So if you're the caregiver and you're always going Mach 2 with your hair on fire, then, you know, your immune system, yes, you, you might be more likely to get sick than your loved one because you're the one that's got zero immune system left from running 24-7 all the time. I was thinking another tip might be when that evening cocktail starts at 2 p.m. Absolutely, oh, Ron, and that's a huge issue. And, and that's in care Carol and says, is that bad? <laughs> Darn, I had to put this away. Wow. Gee. That's, that's not only uh, uh, that issue with, with, with cocktail hours, but it's also with the, the, the medication, which is so readily available um, that caregivers can, can get into. I also believe, Carol, and I think WellMed is doing a great job under the, the charitable foundation and, and your work there, is that in the medical world, caregivers are basically cast away, and it's not like that at WellMed. Um, they're part of the entire sort of psychosocial picture. They become historians and participants. But what's happened is that they've been marginalized by the medical world. There, nobody ever talks about caregivers. They talk about the patient in front of them. And so the patient in front of them does get the medical attention that they need, but you know, nobody is looking after the caregiver in the medical world. Well, it's interesting that you say that because just before coming to the studio today, I was looking at different articles, and there was one where a physician was saying, we need to decide at what point, as the physician of the, the person who's sick, that we need to do an intervention and start taking care of the family caregiver who's caring for the person that's sick. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I can't even imagine a world where the, on the checklist of things that we're doing during that exam, one of them is to get the pulse of the caregiver as well. I mean, that would be radical. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman. Jamie, that, that ought to be part of the regular protocol, should it not, in seeing a patient who's got a caregiver. Oh, I so agree. What you just said, uh, I hope it's not this like, utopian sort of nirvana world that's happening later on. Uh, what you and I have, and Ron, all of us have worked so hard to, to happen is exactly what you just mentioned, is that the caregiver assessment should be done along with caregivers involved, and I would encourage any medical clinic to get the caregivers involved since they, they really do help the quality of care. But if they're a part of this treatment process and their medical health, and at least a check-in, just a, a five-point piece that the doctor can ask the caregiver while he's speaking to the caree could occur and make them more part of the system, oh, we, we you know, I think we would have better quality of care. We would have costs that would, would decrease. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm a social worker. This is a family systems issue. It's always going to be a family systems issue. Well, and the other benefit would be if someone doesn't tell you that you can get help, it's okay to get help, or that there are support groups, or there is something called respite, it is possible for a caregiver to go the entire distance of their caregiving journey without realizing that help was there and they never took advantage of it because they didn't know it existed. Remember we interviewed that uh, Harvard University full professor who was caring for his wife who had Alzheimer's, who had no idea that there was help out there until a student said to him, you know, Professor, you're looking awful. Maybe you ought to get a little help. Some home health care. He's exactly what I was thinking about. But it is possible, you know, if someone doesn't tell you about support groups and doesn't tell you um, that there, there is help available, you can not know about it for forever and then you become one of those caregivers who says oh i wish i had known if i'd only known if i'd only known and that's a rough way to go it is and to your point and i'll be very quick you can actually find online caregiving groups that we hope is a lily pad to group 
groups and, and to services like Caregiver SOS and the Caregiver Teleconnection and what WellMed does for its caregivers. It's so critical, I think, and should be standard operating procedure for a doctor to look directly at the caregiver and, and hand them a list of support groups in the area, and that would make such a good difference. It's a good idea. Well, and if you're out there in radio land wondering where do I find a support group, if you go to eldercare.gov, that will connect you with your local area agency on aging, and they should have a list or be able to tell you who has the list of support groups in your area. It'll give you the area agency on aging wherever you are in the United States. Automatically connects you to your local area agency and on aging. And the caregiver SOS centers can help as well here. And if you're in one of our WellMed markets, mm-hmm. um, we're happy to help you at caregiversos.org. Dr. Jamie, 20 seconds, you get the last word. You know, the to me, this is the, the work that we're about, and certainly the group on this telephone and this radio show and, and what the WellMed Charitable Foundation has been about. And that's been the integration of the caregiver into the entire biopsychosocial medical picture of the caree. The quicker we get to this point, the quicker we actually address caregivers as part of the family system, I think the healthier families will be and the better medicine will be in the long run. Thank you. Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air, Dr. Jamie Heisman. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We thank you for listening on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. 